This is Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master, creating products customers love. Get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad you're on this product mastery journey with me. This is a special episode because we're sharing an important discussion from the summit that we did in 2020. The summit brought together 24 experts who spoke on topics for product managers and product VPs. Many of those topics are truly timeless, and this is the second time that I've shared one publicly. Our guest is Ash Moria. He's been a favorite repeat guest on the podcast, and he also spoke at our summit in the product VP track on the topic of continuous innovation. Ash is a leader in lean product processes and tools, and he's also the author of Running Lean, as well as his second book, Scaling Lean. And I'm sure you'll find his insights really valuable. I always do. And we'll start that discussion in just a moment. The episode is brought to you by the Rapid Product Master Experience, the RPM Experience. This is a nine-week program meeting 75 minutes a week to build a foundation of product management knowledge, get everyone on the same page, improve collaboration, and renew a focus on the customer. Product VPs and other leaders use the RPM experience to improve their organization's product capability. Now, after conducting an RPM experience for an organization, I often meet with the person who wanted the experience, and I ask them what difference it made for their group. And here are some responses I've received so far. At Praxair, after conducting several groups for product managers, we were told that the big change was understanding why their product processes worked the way they did. Not just how they worked, but why the various elements were used and what they could improve. At Motorola, we took all their product managers through the RPM experience, and they told us the major change was that product conversations now had more customer focus. ALW, a lighting designer and manufacturer, shared that they now look at why they do things, the purpose behind it, instead of just doing what they have always done, and they see a path to growing revenue more quickly. If you want to discuss how the RPM experience can improve the product performance of your group, it will just take a few seconds for you to schedule time for us to talk. Just do that at productmasterynow.com RPM. This is the part of the year also when organizations are budgeting training for next year, and we already have groups scheduled to start in January. So don't delay. See how we can also help you by going to productmasterynow.com RPM. Now, on to the special episode with Ash discussing continuous innovation. For this session, we are with Ash Mariah. He perhaps is the person who has made the lean startup uh, practices, that information, more practical and put into use than anyone. He took the information from Eric Reese, who started all that for us, and then put it into practice and in real companies and then wrote about it in, the, wrote about it in two key books for us, those experiences, making it really practical for us. So that was Running Lean and then Scaling Lean. And if you don't know about that already, you probably know about the Lean Canvas. He's the creator of that. That's my go-to tool. If you've never heard of that before, I had the pleasure of talking to uh, Ash about that and a few other topics uh, way back in an early episode of the podcast. So that's at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 010. And you'll find the Lean Canvas there as well as detailed instructions for using it. Ash, thanks for being part of this. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me back again. Uh, very glad to. I, I was glad to benefit from all your experience putting Lean uh, into practice, and you've helped us out a lot with those ideas. And now we're going to talk about something. There, there's a term that you coined not too long ago, maybe a few years ago now, uh, continuous innovation. 
Um, what is that and why do organizations need it? <laughs> sure. It, it came from this reflection. So again, I, I came from a startup world. Um, I work in big companies, but as a lot of the work you were just body of work, lean startup has kind of moved into the corporates. I kept coming in there and talking to innovation teams and they always use the language of sustaining or disruptive innovation. And it also always felt like innovation happened somewhere else. You know, there was like the core business and then there was the innovation and the world we live in has changed in, in, in terms of speed. We'll start talking about speed and other things a bit later on, um, I'm guessing, but the world is moving a lot faster. Um, the customer relationship has changed more more businesses, whether you're building cars, um, banks, insurance, doesn't really matter. You know, going to the end end user has become more critical than ever. Um, and so, with that kind of insight, it became increasingly important not to think of innovation that happens in a lab somewhere, but rather it's something that should be happening continuously all the time. So rather than so, it was really a a play at not stop and go innovation, but rather continuous innovation. And so if you're doing this all the time, making your products better, testing, refining your business models on the go, it's a continuous process rather than being stop and go. So that's kind of the the, the reason for the word continuous in there. Excellent. Uh, so some have likened this to the total quality movement, the, <laughs> the, this notion that, you know, it used to be quality was kind of an afterthought. Maybe it was something one group did. Sure. And now there's this mantra that quality is everyone's job. Um, and, and that's what I hear as you talk about this too, right? The innovation needs to be part of what we're doing, not just that thing over in some corner that we don't really see what's going on there. It's all very secretive. Yeah. Um, and you have put together um, so, some different kind of mantras about continuous innovation that I've seen in different places. One are six rules for it. And I thought that might be a helpful framework for us to walk through because I'm hoping we can help product VPs that are listening and those that want to become product VPs and leaders, uh, product managers, um, help have influence in their organizations on this very idea. How can we instill more innovation into something that we do as product managers and not that something that happens elsewhere? So can you take us through your six rules? Yeah, so we'll, we'll start at the very top. So I, I was kind of highlighting speed uh, a bit earlier, and that's essentially a, a, a trigger in the world that is, is just reflective of how um, many businesses are just moving faster. Uh, we came from a time where there were lots of barriers to entry. So even um, if you were a startup, raising money was a significant barrier to entry. If you were a big company, you know, having, having customers was a big barrier to entry. But with falling costs, uh, with globalization, open source, all these things, amazing things that have happened, it's cheaper and faster than anyone in, in most parts of the world to start building things. And so, I, and this might be an interesting statistic, but in 2018, I ran into um, this survey that's run by, uh, by the Babson School, it's one of the top entrepreneurial schools, and they found that in that year, there were 100 million startups created, 100 million. That's three startups a second. That's just how many people are, are you know, taking, taking you know, bats and ball. Um, and so now, of course, not all of them are not going to succeed. The majority of them, you know, start and then they don't get too far. But it only takes a few of them to break through. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a very big number. And that's where the first kind of principle or, or uh, you call it mantra, but I like to think of it more as kind of the, the, the design principles kind of behind continuous innovation comes in is this idea of speed of learning. Um, it boils down to companies that can outlearn their competition when, um, and if you can do that once you build a product that potentially customers want, 
And if you then do this continuously, there's that word again, if you can do this continuously, you stay a step ahead um, and you can prevent others from switching customers away from you. Um, and that's why it's continuous innovation is, is so critical and it's a continuous process. Um, final highlight there is that speed is relative. So oftentimes when people say, well, how fast should I go? Some of the examples people might point to would be the super fast you know, companies like Amazon and, and Facebook, and they are moving at just a different speed because they have lots of um, customers and metrics and things. Um, speed is relative. You don't have to be moving at that fast unless you are directly competing with those, those companies. Um, so I like to look at other examples. If we look at Tesla, Tesla built a car in the car world at light speed. So they went from concept to a road drivable car in two and a half years. Most companies would take 10 years to do it. So in their world, two and a half years is super fast. Um, if Facebook took, took two and a half years to launch a feature, that would be you know like too, too slow. So it's all relative. Um, so that's the first thing, speed of learning. Um, the other one is thinking of the business model as the product. Um, I came very much from a technical background myself. So thinking of business model as a product was critical for a number of reasons. One is that the solution piece, which is what we all gravitate towards as innovators, is important. The invention piece, I would say, is important, but a small part of what makes an innovation work. Um, so it's really how that invention, new way of doing things, the solution gets used by customers, how it gets to market, what it, it integrates with what it replaces. Um, and that picture is where the business model comes in. And one of the tools for mapping that out is a tool that you mentioned uh, in the intro, the Lean Canvas, but it's a way of kind of seeing where the idea fits. Um, but when you deconstruct the idea down like that, you can kind of put the jigsaw puzzle together and at least start to see the, the picture more holistically. So thinking of that business model. Um, the next kind of step from there is tackling riskiest assumptions. Um, and this is important because again, we are moving fast. We want to prioritize our efforts on the wrong, on, on the right problems, not, uh, not waste resources on the wrong things. Risks have changed. So I, again, going back to some of the things I said earlier, we came from a world where building product was particularly risky. There was lots of technical risk. Today, we find most products suffer from customer market risk before technical risk because we can build most things today um, thanks to all the technologies. And so taking, a, taking a, an, an assessment or baselining an idea to see what might be riskiest and starting there first is what this third kind of principle is about, tackle riskiest assumptions. Um, from there, it kind of weaves naturally into being customer problem-centric. Um, so again, going with this idea that most businesses suffer from lots of customer risk. In other words, are we building things that they want? Are we building things that will be better? Are we think, building things that will cause a switch? Um, starts with deep understanding of customers and their needs and wants. Um, and we can get it, you know, off into the weeds talking about needs and wants. I tend to look more for wants because oftentimes customers can't clearly understand their needs in the early stages because they don't often know what's possible. But when we think in terms of desires and outcomes, the wants are easier to see. Um, so you can look at evidence of struggle. You can look at evidence of unmet desired outcomes. You know, I want to sell more. Everyone wants to sell more. Everyone wants to make one more money or save money. But what are the obstacles? What are the challenges in the way? That's where we find the problems worth solving. 
That's where we understand what they're using today, what isn't working. And so that's the customer problem centric. So not solution centric, but first customer problem centric, and then the solutions kind of become clear from there. Um, the last two are really kind of more about measurement. So a lot of this process is evidence-based, which is the, the, the fifth one, I guess we're at number five, you know, using an evidence-based approach. Um, this is critical because when we are moving really fast, it's very tempting to um, do things kind of half-baked, um, make a lot of course corrections, just throw a lot of stuff on the wall, see what stick. We sometimes call those uh, a pivot strategy, but I find that that's more of a what sticks you know, strategy. Let's throw a bunch of stuff, stuff, see what sticks. And sure, if you have enough stuff that you're throwing out there and you can find something that, that, that sticks, that's an approach to finding a product that works. And some people do that. It's the it's the brute force approach for finding an idea that works. Um, again, if you don't have a lot of resources, that's not always going to be the most optimal path. So for us, it's much more effective to take a more evidence, more discipline-based approach. So everything that we run, um, whether it's a new feature, whether it's testing a new product, we design some experiments. They are time box. So again, much like an agile process where we will go away for a little bit of time um, building and then coming back and seeing, you know, did we build the right thing? Here we go a bit a bit further to say, did we not just build the right thing, but what evidence do we have that we did do that? So we have to measure something very concrete. Um, and so that evidence-based decision-making is very critical in this in this framework, especially because we are going really fast and it's, it's, it's too risky to go down that wrong rabbit hole. Um, and then the way we keep the scorecard of all of this is traction. So the last kind of, uh, piece to the puzzle is thinking. We talked about business model is the product, but traction is the goal. Now, traction is a term a lot of people use, um, oftentimes without really having a very good definition for it. So traction is a measure of something working, but when you say, how do you measure it? Oftentimes it's whatever is working. If, if I'm getting more customers, it'll be like, oh, look, we're getting a lot of traction. If we're getting more downloads, it'll be, oh, that's a lot of traction. Um, and those are all parts of traction, but we define traction as the thing that aligns with with creating monetization uh, in, in potential or value in the business model. Um, so it's a leading indicator. It's not revenue or profit. That's what a lot of um, stakeholders want to see is show me, you know, the, the, the revenue or profit going up. Traction is actually the step that comes before that. And that's why it is so powerful because it has predictive capabilities. Um, if you have a good quarter, everyone takes credit for it. If you have a bad quarter, nobody takes you know the blame for it. Everyone's pointing fingers. If we can break that down into traction, we can tie causality. And that's the power of traction is we can show that customer behavior in a particular quarter changed. And because of that, we can now kind of explain away whether we're having a good quarter or a bad quarter. So that's the power of traction. Um, and so we talk a lot about how we define traction in the business model, but then building a discipline of measuring. So that's the scorecard that we can then use to do evidence-based decision-making. So those are, those are generally the, the kind of the six principles um, that one should embody when you're trying to go fast with continuous innovation. Okay, so six principles of continuous innovation. I've been taking good notes, and I want to go back mm -hmm. and ask you some questions about these. We have speed of learning, the business model, tackle your riskiest assumptions first, uh, we're customer problem centric. It's evidence based, and traction is the goal. Okay, so back to speed of learning. Uh, you, you gave Tesla as an as an example, and another guest actually talked about um, this in terms of 
uh, their autopilot and that their autopilot capability has given them such a lead over their competitors because they've been getting this data all the time, right? Um, yeah. d- does that fit into your speed of learning aspect? Uh, or is that a good, good example? Yes, absolutely. And I think what's also very interesting to see in that story is that sometimes we build, uh, we, we build so we can learn faster. And that's a step that I also find a lot of people struggle with. So I can go into a big company and I can, I can ask them to show me, and it's not, by the way, not just picking up big companies, even startups, ask them to show me their metrics dashboard and then be like, oh, you know, we don't, we, we have the easy one. We have the Google Analytics page or something like it, but it's not the right metrics to be tracking. Um, and then to actually get the right metrics, it's a, it's a project of itself. Like it's a massive undertaking and that's why there's so much inertia no one wants to do it. But when you look at Tesla from the moment they, even before the autopilot, even the car they built, they spent a lot of time trying to design the car with all the hardware they would need and then do software updates. So you update the car like you would update your phone. Um, and that's just mind blowing. Like, you know, what car company ever, ever did that? So they did all of this stuff over the wire updates and you could make the car go faster. You could add more features, change the dashboard, you know, do autopilot, make improve autopilot. So those were all kind of uh, a, a foresight of knowing that we have to go fast, but taking the requisite investment up front in continuous deployment, which would be the, the, the principle here or continuous delivery is another term for that. Uh, so being, being able to do continuous again becomes an Im- important way for them to keep iterating, keep experimenting, learning, refining. Um, and so it goes back to that speed of learning. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, purposely trying to create a platform as an aspect of your product for learning, right? What, what can That's we right. do to learn better how our customers are interacting with our product and, and turn those cycles faster? Yeah. And, and the good news is that if anyone's doing anything digital these days, the, the tool set has just exploded. Like whether you're doing mobile or, or web or cross platform, there's so many great tools out there. You know, when I was starting out, we had to build some of these things, which took even more kind of investment and time. But things like continuous delivery and continuous deployment, um, all these things, there are you know third party SaaS products or some products out there that you can plug into or frameworks or open source things you can start using. Um, so there's almost, it's just more of a, a, a mindset of we, this is important. We need to start doing this. Um, and I often liken, you know, uh, uh, running a product without a dashboard, without the right metrics, like getting in a car without being able to see where you're going. You can step on the accelerator and go really fast, but you have no clue if you're just going to go off a cliff or you're going to end up in, in Florida or wherever, you know, where, wherever you're headed for, for holidays. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and you, and you said metrics are hard, right? You, you own organizations and they have kind of the, the simple basic dashboard. And getting the right metrics are challenging. And part of the, this ties into your last uh, guideline. You talked about the real effort, you know, traction is the goal here. Um, an example, I don't know if we've talked about it before, it was one I came across a long, long time ago at Ford Motor Company. And they were trying to figure out the throughput of the line for one section of the line, right? <clears throat> and they decided, well, the quick metric we can do for this is we'll just weigh the amount of waste sheet metal that the line produces. And, you know, that will tell us what the throughput was that the workers got done. Well, yeah. you can imagine that if you're a clever worker and you feel like the line is slow that day and you, that was not your fault at all and you're being measured against this goal, you might cut up some sheet metal to create waste sheet metal, right? Um, so we need metrics that are leading metrics for us, but also ones that aren't easily gamed that actually give yeah. us useful data. 
Yeah, and and, and I guess the, the so 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 the the antidote to not gaming is is not doing those sub metrics, right? So we can take the equivalent of that into sales. You know, you know, close more accounts, and so what happens at the end of the month is sure salespeople will close more accounts and collect their commissions because that's what they're being rewarded on. But the next month, those customers will churn because they were closed in a hurry or there was aggressive tactics used. You know, marketers give me more leads. I can pump in all the leads you want. They may not be very good quality leads, but if you put me against the wall, I'll give you leads. Um, you know, developers write more code. That actually used to be something I've actually lived through. So you, again, I'll just write more lines of code and that's not necessarily better code. Um, so all those are examples of KPI metrics, which again, get in the way. So they're... There, so it's always important to when policies are being made, and especially when you have departments and you're trying to use metrics as a way to incentivize, to try to tie those still to the ultimate traction throughput metric. Otherwise, uh, you get a lot of these, you know, game effect. Even in lean startup, we talk about run more experiments, and there's actually the the, the the National Science Foundation here was giving out grants if you interviewed 100 customers, and so guess what? Exactly 100 customers got interviewed. Um, not one more, not one less. <laughs> so that's again where we, we sometimes, when we create such policies, they actually have this this counter effect, and you want to try to avoid that. Right. Yeah. So choose metrics wisely, and when you think through it, we have time. We'll get back to that one. The, the <laughs> business model itself is the product, and this is seen in your Lean Canvas tool, um, and certainly a tool that everyone I think should be using. I, I've used it in a number of ways. Uh, I like it very much as a collaboration tool help everyone stay on the same page. Um, and I was hoping a company last year go through one of their products and use the Lean Canvas to ba- just get us all on the same page thinking about it. And I kind of missed it at the beginning. So we talked about who the customer segment was, thought we were good on that. And we talked about the problem that they have. Still, everyone was sounding like we were talking about the same thing. And it was when we got, we talked through the, even the solution. And then we started talking about the value proposition. And it became clear that we actually had two very different customers mm. in mind. Um, and it took me that long to figure that out for them, right? But they're using the same words, but they actually, yep. two different groups are meant very different things by these words. Um, and it's such a great tool for that to help us think through what the right business model is and also collaborate about it. Um, it just, I, I know you use this in a number of ways. Just what do you think about that collaboration aspect? No, that, that, that is exactly it. So when, so when we look at ideas, so, so the way we, we kind of define the unique value proposition of Lean Canvas now, so it, it's definitely started off you know, in the startup world, and when you're starting there, the business model is the language we use. But as you pointed out, if you already have an established product, we've had teams use this for release planning. So they will do this for just a, a, a feature even. Um, so who are my customers? What problems do I solve? And so we have kind of generalized the value proposition of the unique value prop, uh, of the Lean Canvas as being a tool that allows you to clearly and concisely communicate your idea to others so you can get by it. Like that's how I, I like to describe it. So whether that buy-in is, you know, an investor giving me money for my new startup, or it's, you know, product manager going to their stakeholders and saying, here's why we should do this. Um, that's what the tool ultimately becomes. So it's a storytelling tool where you can take an idea out and, and deconstruct it, look at it from different, different uh, perspectives, share it with someone other than yourself, because of course we always agree with ourselves, <laughs> show it to someone other than yourself, and if they get it and can relay it back to you, then then you have got uh, an idea understood, which is the first step, and then you can start the process of buy-in. Um, so collaboration to me is exa- exactly you know in line. Um, and when you've got teams with their perspectives, we'll sometimes say, you know, all of you go away for a little while. Don't do this as a group exercise. Go away for a little while. 
create your versions of the canvas, you know, what you think is important. Let's come back and put those post-it notes on a giant wall somewhere and then try to, you know, reconcile. Like, as you said, you know, it seems like you had some agreement and then there was, uh, you know, a point where there was some debate and some discussion. So let's find those and kind of talk through them versus get into a room and what happens in, in the in the group kind of activities, a lot of group things sets in, people don't voice all their opinions. If you have hippos, the highest paid officer kind of opinion in the room, you know, that kind of wins out. Um, so this idea of, of diverge, converge comes from design thinking is very helpful for just bringing more ideas to the table. Uh, sure. Yeah, it's such a great tool. And if hopefully uh, everyone listening, you know, gets these six rules for continuous innovation, but if nothing else, if you're not putting this tool into practice, you should be. So I gave a resource that you and I created, you know, many years ago, uh, everydayinnovator.com slash zero one zero. Do you have a place that you like to point people to, to say, Hey, here's how you get your hands around the lean canvas. Yeah. So leancanvas.com. That's actually a kind of a URL we have. It'll if you've never seen it, there's, there's, a, there's just a visual of it right there. It's one page is what you see is what you get. Like it's, it's a one page kind of canvas. So it's a one page document for breaking an idea down. So that'll be where I'd, I'd point to. Um, there's then a kind of a free sign up link and there's some videos for how to get started. So that's oftentimes where most people come in and discover it. Excellent. Okay. Let's move on to tackling the riskiest assumption first. So uh, th- this makes good sense to me, right? It's like, you know, <laughs> what's the biggest unknown? We're going to try to solve that. And you talked about building experiments to help us with that. Uh, do you have an example or, or maybe just the, the how-to that you might think about constructing an, an experiment? Yeah, so with, with most products, and so I, I guess the, the simple example I often like to use that most people get because we all, we all eat food is opening a restaurant. So if you are opening a restaurant, a lot of risks associated with it. And the riskiest assumption in my mind is not scaling risk because that's where people again go astray and one of the mindsets not covered here but we we kind of talk about more when you start uh, uh, practicing some of these playbooks we, we 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 touch on in the continuous innovation process is this idea of stage rollout so in the beginning when you have zero customers don't worry about your one millionth or one thousandth customer let's worry about the first one or first ten customers so if i were opening a, re- a restaurant the question becomes how do I get the first 10 people to come and try my food and, and buy it? Um, and when I'm only looking to serve 10 customers, I start breaking things apart. I don't really need a brick and mortar location. You know, I don't need to go through all of that. Um, I can come up with faster experiments. If I want to test just that assumption, I might go into catering or I might get a food truck, which has now become very popular all over the world, really. Uh, but I could get a food truck, drive that around, you know, try different menu items, try different locations, different price points. And those would be examples, all of experiments, testing kind of different assumptions in that, in that particular idea. So mm-hmm. to me, a food truck is a fast vehicle, literally, for, for testing the concept for a restaurant. And many restaurateurs are actually using that and embracing that. Yeah. Um, the of the food truck is what, what you would need to do in, in your idea to see how do we build some equivalent thing and start quickly testing the first one to 10 customers, uh, their engagement with it, their, their acceptance of it. Yeah. Or, or like you said, f- open up a pop-up restaurant. Maybe you could find a, a restaurant that closes at three o'clock, you know, that has a yep. kitchen available for you that you could set up for the night. Um, the idea here is that, and I see this mistake too often, um, that we start designing kind of the, the end solution, you know, how are we going to serve a hundred people dinner a night? when we don't really valid, have it validated yet that we need to be able to serve 100 people at dinner at right. night, right? right. So, 
Or okay. we start worrying about the napkins. You know, will people like right. our napkins? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, What's the big thing? Yeah, I mean, it's all the stuff that we we that it's the the early stages of the idea. It's I like to call it the honeymoon period. It's like where everything is possible, but that's also where we. So our vision is important. So I don't want to simplify this and say don't think of those things, but don't kind of overly obsess. Like you have to you have to think big, but then you're acting small to kind of realize that bigger vision. Yep, that's really good. Okay, the customer problem centric approach. This is really, under, as you said, understanding those wants, the outcomes that customers want, what their objectives are, and then helping us kind of work towards the needs. Um, yeah. What's your favorite go to tools? Do you like, you know, are you trying to interview prospective customers about needs? Are you observing? Are you doing something else? Uh, what yeah. do you like to do? So I actually like the interviews, um, and we have developed a, a scripted kind of way of doing this, and we kind of walk people through. Um, a particular process and the interviews are very directed. So we don't talk to people in hypotheticals. So I don't come to you and say, oh, you know, tell me about the problems with X or, you know, would you use Y? Um, those kind of lead to a lot of generalizations when you ask people, for example, if I went back 10 years ago and asked people what were the problems with taxis, I would maybe stumble into some of the problems that led to ride sharing, but I'm guessing not. Like most people would have kind of a very lukewarm response. Today, if you ask people why do you use ride sharing versus taxis, they're very emotional about one versus the other. Um, so that's so that's kind of the nature of asking customers, you know, what problems you have. You don't really usually get the right thing. Um, observing can help if you can be that fly in the wall and really see customers in a natural state. So I'm not against doing it, but with observing, you sometimes miss out on things that are latent. Um, so there's a lot of desire, for instance, like we are doing video right now. Um, if I had asked you even maybe 10 years ago, you know, were you interested in videos? You, maybe you were, but the price point was so high. But if I was looking to just observe you, you know, doing a, a recording, I may not even get a chance to do that because you weren't using video, right? So those are examples of where interviews can help in uncovering desired outcomes and inertia in this case, which might be the price point, which is not that you don't want to do video, but it's just out of reach at this point. So if I can invent a lower cost solution for a resegmented market, that could be very interesting. So that's where we find a lot of blue ocean types of opportunities. So I'm a big fan of interviewing. And we have, as I said, this interview process where we go and target people who we believe are using, are trying to get a job done. So they are like, for example, in, in, if I was using the example we're doing, you know, I'd be looking for bloggers, podcasters. I'd be seeing the job done here is you know, interviewing people, getting ideas out there. I'd like to see how are they doing it. I'd like to see what might they like to do better. Where are they struggling? And that's where maybe video could be a potential solution or it could be something else. But that's we, we bring the solution in later. But first, I want to understand the, the existing state of, of, uh, of solutions. Okay. And I, I'm sure that this isn't specifically about how to do interviews. So I just want to see if we have sure. a resource. As I recall, Running Lean, uh, your, your initial book on putting this in practice, I think had a framework in there, like maybe six questions uh, yeah. for how you do an interview. Um, what is a good place to point people to, to get more insights into this? Yeah, so if, if, if you are a book reader, I mean, in there, that's probably, so I would say Lean Canvas is probably the, 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 the biggest um, thing that people use out of the book. Um, but the second biggest is this interview script. So we actually have a problem interview script in there. And I have gotten lots of emails over the years um, because I attached a, a meta script, as I like to call it, because I tell people it's not so much a verbatim what you have to say, but it's a guide for how to lead the conversation. 
Um, but that creates a starting template, has created become a starting template for many people's interviews. And so it's a, it's a good resource to kind of pick up and, and start your interviewing and start your interviewing process with. Okay, excellent. Okay, on to evidence-based. Um, so th- th- this was about not moving just fast and throwing stuff at the wall, but doing things a little bit more purposely. Um, and there are those organizations that will say, oh, yes, we're agile, we do MVPs. And what they really mean is we do 20 MVPs a month and we see which one gets you know, some sure. attention, right? Um, th- w- give us an example of, of this as well as if you, if you could about how, how you would approach this and not just blindly do a bunch of MVPs. Yeah. So first, I'll say that the the danger of just throwing a bunch of solutions out there is that you are just guessing. Um, and we are, you know, we may have better educated guesses than others. And so again, that approach can work, but it's just not it's not very optimal. So this is where one of the approaches here is we always like to find evidence of problems before then throwing a solution out. Um, so this is where some of that discovery work can help. The other danger when you throw just a solution out there is when it doesn't stick. Oftentimes, customers don't come and say, oh, this didn't stick, and I'll tell you all the reasons why. They don't. They just disappear. They don't want to talk to you because you, they don't want to waste their time anymore because they've given them something they don't want. Um, and that's where the chase of what we call the, the, the build trap or the mythical killer feature ensues, where we think, oh, it was just it was not working because of this one thing, so let's go change it. And we keep changing more and more, and so that just creates this, this build trap loop. Um, so if we look at kind of the, the better approach, so, so, so I guess if, if, you, if you go back to your question again, so was it looking for a specific example of... Yeah, how about this evidence-based approach in effect so that we're, I think it ties into a lot of what we've already been talking about, but just to underscore, we're not just building the thing. Like sometimes, especially as product VPs, their CEO will say, hey, I just talked to this very important customer. Here's the next project we're doing. Right, right. Okay, that, that's rather limited evidence. Yes. Um, we, we, we need a little bit more than that. Right. So, so, so it, 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 and again, it, just, so it goes back to kind of that evidence-based, which is any, any initiative we're doing that requires a build step, going back to first principles and saying, you know, what evidence do we have? You know, where is this coming from? So if it's coming from the CEO, you know, where did they get it from? Um, how many customers are re- really requesting this? And so we want to make sure that there is an, enough of a customer pull. And ideally, the customer pull is the is the better standard and an internal decision to say, let's change direction. Um, and then even then, we would try to design some experiments. So if you're going to build a product that's going to take you know six months to, let's say, put out there or three months even to put out there, could we go and talk to a handful of our customers and show them a demo of what we build and say, look, we're considering building this. We think it will help you. You know, does it really help? And you kind of walk them through a demo. And if they look at it, and we have actually done this so many times with our own products, and customers have looked at it and said, you know, I don't want to hurt your feelings. This looks great, but I wouldn't use it, <laughs> and I wouldn't use it. And here's why. And, I, and we always leave saying, you know, you're exactly right. You have other other things we should be building. So we so that's just a a simple way to test: is this thing even the right in the right ballpark of of getting the customer to do a job that they're trying to get done. Yeah, excellent. So it's tying back into doing experiments. We do them to identify, you know, what, what's risky. How do we deal with that? And also, also to help us know if we're going down the right path or not. Do them right. early on, quick, and expensive. Okay. And then uh, traction is go. We talked a little bit about uh, metrics before um, and the importance of getting the right metrics. Um, and I'm curious about, about an example there too. I, I was thinking maybe yeah. uh, at one point you you might have another one you want to do, but you had a company that I believe was doing photo sharing. And um, it was going to be a, a SaaS, you know, uh, architecture. 
Um, what did you find that was a good, helpful metric for that? Yeah, so it, it, it often is trying to figure out what is the value creating behavior um, that you have, um, and then how can you make that usage metric go up? So some of that is even segmentation. So this was a photo sharing app. And one of the things we quickly kind of narrowed in on is that if we got first time parents as users of this, this app, because it was simple to use, um, we'd get a lot of photo sharing happening. We get a lot of needs for that happening. And why? Because when you have a baby, people take lots of baby pictures. People want to share those pictures. The baby's changing. You know, we measure little gestures on a daily basis. And whenever something you know, amazing happens, we want to share that. So that would be how we would align ourselves both with the right early adopters, but then with that value metric. If that activity is going up, then, then we know our users are getting value from the product and value creation is the first step towards value capture, which is then us monetizing. Um, so if they're getting value, then reciprocity kicks in, we can then start to monetize. So that would be a, a simple example of, of, of that. Uh, but a few, maybe if I could throw another example, because an, another one that I think is a, a, a helpful one is when we look at marketplaces, when you look at Airbnb, a lot of people look at that as a complex model because you have your buyer side and your seller side, which one do I track? But the right traction metric really is the transaction, right? So it's the number of guest nights booked because I may have a million listings, but if I'm not, if I'm not getting those filled, then there's no value capture happening. So I like to just, and even if you go to Airbnb's site or their, their um, kind of investor reports, you will kind of see that they report on guest nights booked. Because if that number on a normalized basis is going up and to the right, we don't have to ask anything else. We know their business model is growing. So that to me is the that true north uh, traction metric, as we like to call it. Excellent. Thanks for providing those those examples. Uh, good to connect it to that personal experience with the photo sharing and then the company we all know as well and we probably have used. So I appreciate all these guidelines, the, the, the rules of continuous innovation to help product VPs and leaders think about how to influence the organization in these areas. And they're really super practical too, right? So it's, these are all... Th things you put into action immediately uh, and especially getting that lean canvas if you're not already using that tool because a lot of these things tie into that directly. So thank you for that. Sure. I love innovation quotes, you know. Uh, what is the quote that you brought for us and tell us what, why, that, why you chose that one for us? Yeah, so, I, so, so this is actually one that became a personal mantra of mine. Um, and after building products, too many products that nobody wanted, um, I realized I, I needed to find better, a better way of, of thinking through this. So to me, that quote is, life's too short to build something nobody wants. Um, and that's really what set me on this path. So again, I came from a, from a old world approach of building first and then trying to go to market later and doing all those other things we talked about, you know, risky assumptions, testing much, much later in the process. And I kept running into instances where I was running out of resources. I was not getting to a business model that works. And then I would run up and lose my team or you know, lose my money um, and have to kind of get, get rid of the idea before I got it to a better place. Um, so that was kind of a, the, the mantra for me and, and something that we uh, kind of live and try to teach everyone. It's all the principles that we talked about on, on here is how to overcome building the wrong product. Um, but the all, it all starts with the trigger of realizing that at the end of the day, we're trying to build something that ultimately customers will use. Ultimately, we can point to and say, we're proud we built this for our customers. Excellent. And that was the start of the whole, you know, lean startup kind of uh, movement, I'll say. 
Um, and have you talked with Eric Reese specifically about that, his experience with that, you know, building that product that like three people built, three people actually bought? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, he, he has, if, if you get, I mean, he, he is now, of course, building his new startup, which is no longer a startup, it's long term stock exchange. It's a big, massive undertaking. Um, but his early kind of foray and what he started doing, I mean, the startup, a lot of people forget was Eric Reese going into a room with 12 people, kind of sharing his battle scars, his startup lessons learned from making you know, all these mistakes that we are, we are talking about. Um, and the company he was uh, involved with back then was a company called I Am View, which was an online like chat avatar type thing. I think they're, I mean, they're still around and doing well. Um, but it was just this process of being the CTO, you know, spending six months building completely unit tested, you know, perfect, you know, code, beautiful code, you know, nicely formatted, all these things, um, launching that product and then realizing that no one would sign up for it. And then he, he realized that he could have tested that six months ago just with a landing page test. He didn't have to build all of this stuff, right? So that's one of the... The examples that he shares, and of course, there are many others, but uh, but it's all about, again, testing the right things, the right risks at the right time. Um, so don't build if you can use a landing page, you know, sell something before you build. A lot of these uh, these these techniques that we now start teaching that we have learned you know, better ways of doing that we didn't know before. Yeah, and that's such a powerful uh, uh, quote you shared there to wrap all that up, right? Life's too short to build something <laughs> nobody wants. And as product people, we don't want to waste time on uh, effort that doesn't lead to something that people want. So uh, that, that's a great point for us to end on. Thank you so much for sharing the information with us. Sure. My pleasure. And there's a bonus question for you, Ash. <laughs> and that's you, you spend a lot of time with companies helping them on this notion of continuous innovation, right? And, and teaching them what this means and how to do this. And yet I suspect maybe you have more experience than I've seen others have, um, <laughs> That they don't always actually take action. It doesn't become part of their culture, part of their rhythm that they do. Um, what can you share with product VPs to kind of prepare for that, right? So if a product VP has just listened to this and says, okay, I'm excited about this. I know my executive team doesn't really understand how we do innovation. This is a nice framework to talk through. Um, yeah. How can you help them prepare for the obstacles that will come up and to get traction with this? Yeah, and, and they will in, in, inevitably happen. So again, when we talk about the shift to continuous innovation and the shift in any product development process that we have lived through, and I'm sure you know, all of us have lived through at least one or more shifts. And by the shifts, I'm talking about you know waterfall to agile and now agile to say lean or lean startup continuous innovation. Um, those ships are always rocky. Even to this day, people are still practicing agile, which is waterfall disguised as agile, right? So there's there's these tensions, which is part of the company shifts and then the other doesn't. And so we are now speaking two languages in the same company. And those are going to be inherent. Um, and then with any of these shifts, there's also going to be unlearning of, of skills. So one of the things we talk a lot about and maybe came across in, in, the, in the questions earlier is that you have to rigorously test, you know, it's evidence driven. Um, you have to get outside the building. You have to potentially talk to customers. And those are things that are not very comfortable to do. Um, I'd much rather you tell me what to do and I'll stay in my cubicle doing those things. So there's a big unlearning that happens. Um, so the advice that we give teams that want to practice this is that ultimately it's not the merit of the framework. Um, for a while, we were going around saying this method is better than the others and rationally everyone got it. They're like, oh yeah, I can see why the world has changed. We all should be talking to customers. We should be doing these things. But come Monday, it's business as usual. It's like the old habits, habits kick in. So the way that you create these kinds of transformations, in my opinion, is 
first finding the right uh, cross-functional teams within the company that already have above average motivation to want to apply these. And they all they exist out there. Sometimes as, as a VP, you want to look in your own team to say, you know, what would be the right skill skill sets to kind of bring in, like how we build SWAT teams in the past or you know, do these, uh, you know, do these skunk work types of projects. Let's figure out a team first that would be well suited for this. So it's not boil the ocean. Let's go ahead and educate everyone. It's rather finding one team or two teams who might be good fit for this. And then very important for me as a next step is to find a challenging enough project. Um, and that project ideally is one where if it works, the results can, are undeniable. So if you do kind of a pet project that no one cares about, even if you were super successful, you will be yeah, like, you know, that's nice, but that's cute. We're not gonna you know, change any culture because of this. Um, but if you can find something where you're bringing a new, new revenue stream into the company, or you're going into a new market or taking a product you have and selling it in a very different place, all those kind of, once they are done and once they're done, can be done rather quickly, can show, um, can get a lot of attention. So that to me is almost the next the, the, the next step here. And we have had some great success. So we have worked with some banks. Uh, we had Cisco do a project like this one. Um, and they went off with permission, with some cover from their executives, went off and built something that was, you know, a, a massive opportunity for the company. And once people saw the results, they were like, oh, how did you do this that fast? And then people are open to a lot of the tactical stuff that we are talking about here. Um, and that to me is a much better approach. So while, while, um, you know, we, we talk about actions being louder than words, so in words alone, you can go and, and preach all you want and people will, will kind of buy into the benefits of the framework, but they'll not really act. Um, when you get them to start acting, that's better. But to me, results are even stronger than actions. If you can get a small team to start acting and within a quarter, come back and say, look, we found this big opportunity or we did this thing which others have not been able to do um, for, for you know, long periods of time, that gets a lot of attention. So that's generally the approach that I like to point people to. It's any adoption requires a trigger, kind of a change agent. Um, the best trigger is getting some results. If you can, if you can get some results um, fairly quickly, people react to that and then they want to know the hows. So, yeah. Yeah, this reminds me of getting the reference customer, right? That first customer that will be referenced for everyone else you're doing it internally, trying to get that that first team to say, hey, we had this great success. Let's share that with others. I want to get your thoughts on uh, two aspects of that. So um, you, you said that it's uh, with the example of the banks in Cisco, you know, you had executive team cover to say, go do this. I think that's wonderful and important. <laughs> At the same time, I know sometimes yeah. organizations have trouble with that yeah. and there'll be the grassroots effort, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking of one organization specifically that I worked with that when I asked them for an example of what their big innovation was most recently, um, that they shared that. And I said, well, how did that come about? And we said, well, we, we completely ignored the system because if we worked within the system we have, it would have gotten killed, right? Okay. Um, so if is there merit in doing the grassroots approach with a small team no, if, you can't get, if you can't get executive cover? Yeah, yeah, no. So, 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 so the so where the executive uh, cover came in was in the Cisco example, but in the in the bank example, it was exactly grassroots. And so, what this particular team did, it was a it was a third largest bank in Finland. Um, this team had kind of read some of these techniques, and they said, you know, we have an idea for a better product. And in in past, 
you know, they had considered going to their manager and kind of pitching it, but they just didn't, you know, they were technical engineers. I didn't feel like they knew how to really make the case for it. So in their lunch break, and that's the, the advantage when you're working in a bank is your customers are, are easy to find. You just go to the banks that you have and the customers coming out of there are, are your customers. So they began to run some of these interviews we talked about. At some point, they began to show some mock-ups and they came up with some solutions. They didn't build it. They just kind of designed this. And these were done over a few weeks. Um, they went there. But the thing that they did that was brilliant is they recorded some of these conversations. And then they came back to their management team and said, you know, in our, in our lunch hour, you know, we've been, we had this idea. So we went down to the bank to see if it would have any traction. And so here's what we found. And they played this short video of customers kind of relaying problem and looking at this you know, just this mock-up and going, you know, crazy over it, saying this would be, you know, amazing. Yes, we want this. You know, are you guys building this? When can we have it? Um, and that bringing the voice of the customer into that meeting changed the dynamic entirely. The next thing you know, that, that management team is saying, we want to fly you to headquarters because you need to go and teach people how to do what we just did. And by the way, yes, we want to build this. So that's how that kind of turned into grassroots, into, into a project that, that actually took off and got, got lots of cover and attention. Uh, I'm so glad you showed that example. It illustrates the power of the voice of the customer, right? Sharing yeah. that. Um, and what a great way to quickly elevate your career, too. All of a sudden, you're you know, <laughs> being asked by the executives to head up this new project. So um, that's wonderful. Okay, thank you so much for helping us uh, think about how we could actually put that into action and then overcome some of the barriers, some of the stumbling blocks, uh, get, get traction with this inside <laughs> the organization. So, Ash, really appreciate all the insights. Yeah, thank you. Thanks again for having me. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.